the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Laura Slattery, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week we'll be discussing imminent new regulations for letting out properties on Airbnb with personal finance expert Fiona Redden. We'll be asking whether curbs on Airbnb will help ease the rental market crisis. Irish Times business editor and the regular host of this podcast, Kieran Hancock, would also be giving his reaction to Ryanair's move to ban the media from its upcoming AGM. But first up, for a roundup of this week's business news, I'm joined by Peter Hamilton. Hi, Peter. How are you? What's going on? Well, I suppose quite a busy day this morning or today so far. Uh, Jean-Claude Juncker was giving his annual State of the Union address. Um, He's been talking tax. He has been talking tax. And I suppose this is the issue of we're, we're most likely to latch on to here in Ireland. He was saying that the EU should scrap national vetoes on tax and should move to a system of majority voting. So Brussels have been, have been pushing for this for some time. They've been pushing for more coordination uh, on tax. And I suppose... This kind of shows us that he's not really on the political pulse at the moment. This is a move that's likely to be opposed, obviously, here and in smaller member states. Nonetheless, this conversation about tax is likely to worry uh, Ireland and indeed those smaller member states. Um, also today, Jean-Claude Juncker was, was pushing for uh, a move to tax tech companies, a digital tax. Um, now... The Irish government, again, are opposed to this on the ground that it would do some damage to the multinational investment here. Uh, He said also that the Commission would propose finding the likes of Google, Facebook and Twitter, and this again is a separate matter, uh, if they fail to remove extremist content within an hour. So I suppose a lot of emphasis placed on digital companies and and large US multinationals on today's State of the Union. Of course, there were other things, uh, such as saying that Ireland will be supported in this Brexit disaster uh, and other things like that about about strengthening the euro. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to, I suppose, a fear that we had in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote, which was that, we, you know, we obviously do need Brussels support and we have their support on the Brexit issue. But we're, you know, we might almost be sort of <laughs> forced to compromise on our long-held divergence of opinion on, on tax. Absolutely. And the UK was obviously one of our key allies in that regard. So we are losing an ally on on the tax front. So it's ever so slightly worrying, uh, I suppose, for the government. If this continues to be one of our bigger policies, it's it's, it's an important tax policy to attract investment here. And obviously there's there's talk amongst OECD countries as well that that this has to change. There has to be a better system of taxing digital companies uh, and services. So... Look, the debate will undoubtedly roll onwards. Whether unanimous voting is on the cards, it seems some, some time off. Uh, Jean-Claude Juncker only has a year left in this role, so perhaps it could die out after that. But we, we, it is one of those things where we'll just have to wait and see. So can it actually be true that there was some good news this week for food company Arista? Absolutely, yeah, it can. Uh, it might come as a surprise to regular listeners of this podcast, but shares advanced 18% yesterday. Um, that was on the back of a group of investment banks conditionally signing up to be the underwriters uh, to guarantee its planned €800 million Euro share sale. So just to track back ever so slightly, Arista has been in the news and, and has had some trouble over the past 
three and a half years effectively now uh, after a series of profit warnings, uh, difficult financials and it's mounting debt burden. As of January, it had a a debt burden of 1.6 billion. So it's quite significant. They've been forced to sell some non-core assets as a result. So this news was undoubtedly positive that uh, the likes of Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, um, UBS, Credit Suisse, JP Morgan, HSBC, they've all agreed to back it effectively when it goes back to the market seeking its additional 800 million. While it was a positive day, and as you can see reflected in the share price, one analyst said that uh, there still remains a lot of unknowns. So that was Andreas von Arks, and he held his hold rating on the stock. But nonetheless, positive news. They also appointed a few new board members, one of which, or one of whom rather, was the former uh, president of McDonald's USA. That's a key client. Uh, Arista is the, the largest maker of buns uh, for McDonald's. So to get a former McDonald's executive, and he was in the seat until quite recently, uh, he left, Michael Andrews, he left in 2017. So to get to get him on the board is undoubtedly a boost as well. Another one that might surprise a few people Irish households are wealthier, on paper at least, than they were before, during the boom. Yeah, it is a paper exercise, I suppose, more than anything who's, else. Who's saying this? So this is the central bank. It's their quarterly financial accounts, which show that the net worth of Irish households was $732 billion. That's the highest it's ever been, uh, and that eclipsed the boom time high of $719 billion. So it, it puts a, a, a worth of over 150000 Per person. Now, it's worth noting, obviously, the population has increased and, and things like that. What's interesting about these figures is that it shows us, and of course, we'll, we'll already know this anecdotally, but it shows us that the age group 35 to 44, that they were the, they are and they remain the most indebted age cohort. Whereas when you look to the younger age cohort, perhaps learning some lessons from the boom, they're less indebted than their European peers. Uh, so while debt has fallen, uh, Irish households are still highly indebted by European standards. And that's probably reflected when we look at our public debt. Now, it's it's separate, but the figures kind of back this up. It's per capita, we have the highest public debt in Europe at over 42,000 person, per person. The next highest is Belgium on over 40,000. Greece is 30,000. Our debt to GDP is, is low compared to Greece at 69%. Um, and that obviously is down from almost 120%. But I suppose some people argue that that isn't a great measure uh, the, because of all the multinational investment that goes on here. Um, so yeah. in, in any event, uh, highly indebted, I suppose, <laughs> even though things look to be getting better. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it sounds like a, this sounds like a positive, you know, good news story. But I suppose the key thing to point out perhaps is, is we're talking about sort of mortgage debt, subtracted that from um, the value of the assets. Yeah. It's not really talking about disposable income and how people feel the cash in their pocket. Absolutely. It's positive, but there are so many caveats. Uh, and obviously the thing that has driven this are house prices. House prices returning. And we'll have seen yesterday that house prices again were up in the year to July. So uh, look, that is obviously having a, having an impact here. Um, so, uh, you know, good news, but very much a paper exercise. So on that cautious note, we'll leave it right there. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Airbnb is set to give the Revenue Commissioners details of thousands of hosts in Ireland who let out property via the website in 2017. The global tech company has been criticised for removing stock from the long-term rental market in several cities, including Dublin. So will this make landlords think twice about using Airbnb? 
And more importantly, perhaps, will restrictions on Airbnb letting help ease the housing crisis? Irish Times journalist Fiona Redden is here. Fiona, first of all, what information exactly is Airbnb passing on to the revenue and what will the revenue do with that? Hi, Laura. Yeah, so this is, comes about as part of an agreement that came about back in 2015. It's an information sharing agreement. So Airbnb has to give over the name of the host, the, where they live, where the, where the address of the property is, and most importantly, I guess, how much they've made from um, using the service. And it's actually quite unique across the world because other countries don't have this information sharing agreement with Airbnb. So it's, it's quite a boon for Ireland. But and that's unfortunately, the Department of Housing haven't actually used these figures, this information that they seem to be getting. So they are maybe hoping to do so in the future. That's right. Yeah, it just comes across the world. I mean, we obviously have the housing shortage in Dublin. It's the same in San Francisco and Paris and London, New York, etc. And with such a tight housing market, Airbnb has become the focus of many people's attention and saying that they're taking too many properties out of long term housing and pushing them into short term letting. And Airbnb refused to say that's the case continuously. But if you look at it in Dublin, I mean, there's multiple amount of properties let out in Airbnb compared to on Daft for long term rents. And the business case is very clear that if you let out short term lettings, you don't have to pay. Um, you're not subject to rent controls, which limits your annual increase is to about 2%. And you don't have to register with the tenancies board. So it's a much easier, looser kind of place for you to let out properties uh, and, and give more the property much more lucrative given the tourism boost in Dublin at the moment. Hotel price is quite expensive. There's demand for something cheaper perhaps and more more casual and people like Airbnb. People like Airbnb, people like staying in an apartment, especially if you have a family, gives you a bit more flexibility, which is all well and good and it's great in that sense. And if you have a spare room and want to let it out, that's great as well that you can do so on the service. But I guess the problem with Airbnb is that it's like a classic disruptor in the tech space. It just comes in, sees the market, goes ahead, builds its product. It doesn't have to think about a traditional company would try to look at planning permissions, how it pays its taxes, etc. This just came in and did it. And now cities across the world are trying to backfill and say, actually, wait a minute, you shouldn't be doing all this stuff that you are doing. So there's kind of, I mean, there's sort of an image of two different type of Airbnb uh, hosts. There's the sort of the casual, occasional Airbnb mm-hmm. host. It might be on holiday themselves and That's just letting it. out their property yeah. whilst they're away. And, but then there's the kind of person which we're really uh, yeah. the government and other people are concerned about, which is the, the, the consistent owner of a buy-to-let property or perhaps several buy-to-let mm-hmm. properties. And rather than making that property available to tenants, and uh, we know how high rents are in, in, in Dublin in particular and other cities across Ireland as well, um, it's removing that from the market and trying to make as much money as possible mm. from tourists. And as you say, I mean, it can be hugely lucrative. We did a piece last year and there's a property just up near Trinity. I think it's six bedrooms. It's making 160000 a year, that one property on Airbnb. I mean, how much would it make in the long-term rental market? A fraction of that. So there is a big business case there and the government have possibly have been a bit slow to cotton on to that and the impact it's been having. So they are going to look at regulations now and... Um, as you said, there's two types of hosts. So you have the first type who's letting out a room, letting out their whole property when they're on holiday. And I don't imagine that the regulations will impact them in any way. But it's the second cohort that the government seems to be trying to restrict. 
So let's talk about maybe what what kind of regulations might be coming uh, down the tracks in the future. There was a working group, wasn't there, set up by the Department of Housing. That's right. And this is one of the things they were looking at, the role of Airbnb in in the housing crisis. they set it up, I mean, as politicians are wont to do, set up a working group and buys you more time. So anyway, they've they've come out with their report and Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, is to bring that to Cabinet next week. And he's going to have a couple of recommendations. And as we understand it, it's probably he's going to look for a type of licensing regime. Now, they've done that in other cities in the world. They've done that in New York, in San Francisco, in Paris and Barcelona. And that requires hosts to give all this information to um, some sort of authority, I guess, that would have to be set up to process that information. And they're hoping with that that it might possibly disincline some landlords from wanting to give this information. And the second part of it is that they might look to restrict how many nights a year you can let out one of these properties for. And they're talking about 90 days, it seems, at the moment. So, that, And that would seem to be quite generous. That, you know, if you, if you were someone who goes away for the month of August, say, <clears> and <throat> has a nice you know, bungalow in Wicklow <laughs> by the lake uh, and you, you might want to, uh, you know, uh, attract a, a, a family from who's, who's yeah. visiting Ireland. That's perfectly feasible, even with the new wouldn't regulations. You need a special licence or anything. No, you wouldn't. But you'd wonder what impact it will have because if you talk to someone, a professional landlord using Airbnb, they will say that it's possibly only a three or four month market anyway that January, February, March, they don't get any business through short-term lettings. So will it really disencourage them to do it? I guess we'll have to wait and see. But the problem with this, as I said, is that you had Airbnb and now everyone's trying to go back in and back up all the regulations after the fact. And it's not necessarily working. I mean, I've talked about those other cities. They've tried to restrict it. Paris did a couple of things like the registrations. But now, I think last week, their um, Minister for Housing came out and said that he wants to ban it altogether, obviously because they weren't working. I mean, there's more than 50,000 properties for let in Airbnb in Paris, which is, I know it's a big city, but that's still enormous. And do we know how many there are in Dublin? I think there's about, there's more than 7,000. That's what's if, advertised right now. And if you look on Daft long term, you're talking about 900 or so. It's definitely not the solution, but even if it freed up the flow of properties, a thousand or so properties, it would help. It would definitely help. So just to sort of uh, give some context to why we were even talking about Airbnb, it's only existed as a company for a decade, but it hasn't been in Ireland for even that long. So it has kind of been a, a very kind of fast... Um, it's a hugely fast growing, growing company. company. And it's kind of... So it has taken by people by surprise. I remember the first time I saw it criticised in connection with its impact on, on on the housing market was actually in connection with London, which is where obviously rents were sky sky high. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing started happening here. Mm-hmm. And certainly where I live in an apartment block and there's certainly Airbnb activity going on. Yeah. And I mean, and it can be, is, is it annoying for you? People coming well, in. Well, I have had people. I have had uh, people trying to get into my apartment with a key that isn't is the wrong key. They should be going to another apartment, <laughs> and I kind of think, oh, do I you know half asleep in, my, in the middle yeah. of the night, thinking, do I need to uh, go and tell them they've got the wrong address? Or and then you hear them on the phone. You know, they're on the phone, somebody, and they're figuring it out that they're at the wrong place. But you know, they're there with their suitcases. Yeah, where is probably it? panicking that they're you know they haven't got somewhere but to if stay it, that if night. If it was an above board tourist accommodation, then it should have. 
a reception area. Do you know, there's nothing yeah. wrong with short-term lets or staying in an apartment for your holiday. But Airbnb itself doesn't really get involved in that It doesn't process. get involved. I mean, it's a great business model. But I mean, people should be paying tax on, on rental income anyway. I mean, in a way, there's no, no difference between tax. There's on. absolutely no difference. And it's, at, it's up to the marginal rate. So you could be paying up to 55% on your Airbnb income. But I mean, there are allowable expenses on that as well. And earlier this year, the Revenue actually sent out letters to people because they have the information now, obviously, and they're getting it again now for next year, for last year. They sent out letters to people asking them to verify how much how much income they made and how much tax they owed. You hinted there that this isn't really, you know, necessarily the solution to the housing crisis. Would we be even be talking about Airbnb if the supply of housing stock in, in Dublin uh, was well, at the level it should be? No, because there's two factors there, isn't there? If the supply was at the level, the profits to be made in Airbnb possibly wouldn't be bringing in long-term rental people into the market. And if the whole, you know, if the whole supply was enough, prices for everything would be less. So less people would be inclined to use Airbnb. Okay, well, I I see that the company itself has said recently that it's having its busiest summer to date in Ireland. And we're going to wait and see what the proposals that are brought to Cabinet, we think possibly next week, are going to say. Yeah, Yeah, but for now, thanks very much, Fiona Creden. Thank you. Time for a short break. Coming up, Kieran Hancock will be giving his thoughts on Ryanair's move to bar journalists from its AGM. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life June 2015. In an extremely rare move by a public company, Ryanair has banned journalists from attending its annual general meeting next week, citing a desire to allow shareholders to discuss all matters freely with the board. Kieran Hancock, business editor of the Irish Times, is here. Kieran, this is an extraordinary statement from Ryanair. It's incredible. It's unprecedented in many ways. Uh, never before in the history of an Irish listed PLC in anybody's memory. And there are you know, quite a few grey hairs in the Irish Times uh, who've been covering public companies uh, down the decades. And never in any of our memories can we recall a situation where a public company has excluded the media from its annual general meeting. It's a, they don't have to do it. They're not required by law to do it or anything like that. But it is an accepted convention. And it's kind of seen as one of the reasons why they enjoy certain uh, securities, if you like, as a public company. They're given certain guarantees, if you like, under company law and so forth. Uh, And one of the things that's expected in return of them is transparency. And an obvious way to be transparent is to allow the media in to cover your uh, meeting with shareholders uh, on an annual basis. And indeed, whatever extraordinary general meetings are held. The only case I can really think of uh, was a case when Payzone, uh, back in 2008, excluded the media, banned the media, including myself. I was there on the day. We weren't allowed to go into the extraordinary general meeting that was being held to consider the firing of the then CEO and the then chief financial officer. It was quite a controversial move. Payzone was in a lot of trouble at the time. It had done an acquisition in the UK, which had gone sour. Um, and a lot of shareholders were very unhappy with the performance of the company and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of uh, litigation flying about between the various sides. And as a result of that, they decided to exclude us. That is the only time I can ever remember that. And Payzone was listed on the junior AIM market in London at the time. So we can say two things based on that. And one of them is that it's part of sound 
uh, corporate governance to allow media scrutiny and also at times when uh, companies try and swerve media scrutiny it tends to be when they're in a, t- a time of crisis well, you know why is Ryan well, just take up that second point Laura when you think about it the banks no I mean nobody was in bigger crisis than the banks over the you know if you go back 10 yeah. years when the financial crash came the banking and property crash in Ireland was the Biggest, deepest, worst in the history, in modern history that any of us uh, can remember in relative terms, okay? And AIB and Bank of Ireland uh, and permanent TSB all bailed out by taxpayers. They all allowed uh, media in to report on their AGMs and they were having uh, insults thrown at them. They were having eggs thrown at them. You know, it was a very rough ride. Now, what some of the banks did was they, they would allow, let's say, RTE or TV3 to come in with their cameras. TV3 as well as Virgin Media now, to come in with their cameras and maybe film um, the, the board coming out and sitting down and setting up and all of that. And then the, the, the cameras will be asked to leave, but the reporters will be allowed to stay to report on the meeting. So even the banks, at the height of the crisis, in the worst of it, when they were facing the you know trades and abuse from shareholders, even the banks allowed the media in to cover it. It kind of begs the question as to why Ryanair won't do it. Is it a fit of peak? Or is there is there something going to be discussed that they simply don't want the media to know about? So I mean, yeah. So there is a mystery there. But for, uh, just to just to sh- say what they have said, and it isn't very much. It was quite a brief statement. I'll I'll read it now in full. Ryanair today advised all relevant financial media that at its AGM next week, there'll be no press invited or admitted to the meeting and no press briefing afterwards. We wish to allow shareholders to discuss all matters freely with the board without these discussions being distorted for PR purposes. Now, that last part, being distorted for PR purposes, that sort of sounds like Ryanair having a a go, having a pop at the media. What, what you know? What's what, what's Michael O'Leary? Well, they haven't clarified what they mean by that. Our yeah. colleague Barry Halloran was talking to the airline yesterday. Haven't clarified what they mean mean about that. But if anybody plays the PR game, it's uh, Ryanair, and we know that uh, through the years they've used the media to very good effect uh, to play the the PR game and um, to harangue uh, uh, airport operators, to harangue governments, to harangue uh, regulators, and even sometimes to harangue the media. Uh, for their coverage of various matters either related to Ryanair or related to uh, aviation uh, in the broadest sense. They've been very smart operators. They used it to good effect uh, at Aer Lingus uh, annual general meetings. Uh, Ryanair used to be the biggest shareholder on the Aer Lingus books before mm-hmm. Aer Lingus was taken out by IAG. And uh, as we know, they made three attempts to try and acquire Aer Lingus, unsuccessful attempts as a turnout. But they used to send representatives. Uh, Howard Miller used to turn up at the meeting every year and he would get out and he would get up and he would make a statement. And of course, all of the uh, media would be there to cover it. And That's Ryanair's Howard Miller at going to the early. Yes, he's a former executive director. Uh, he's now on the, the board of the company as a non-executive, mm-hmm. but he's a former executive director and he would have been very close uh, lieutenant, shall we say, to Michael O'Leary during his time um, at the airline. And no problem with Howard Miller doing that. He was entitled, uh, Ryanair was entitled to make a statement to the chairman of Aer Lingus uh, from the floor at that time. But I mean, Ryanair generally, you know, would, would make some, would highlight some criticisms it would have about certain things that Aer Lingus w- was doing. And they would be faithfully reported by the media. And Ryanair never had a problem with the media doing that. In fact, they were happy to, uh, you know, uh, happy to have us there, as it were. And over many years as a public company, Ryanair has been happy to have the media in there. And we've covered them in good times and in bad. And let's face it, there have been many, many more good years for Ryanair than there have been bad years. I mean, the, the past year or so hasn't been good for them on a number of fronts because of industrial action, because of cancelled uh, flights and so forth. But 
you know, by and large, this has been a very profitable com- company over the years. They've gotten under the skin of a lot of people, but you can't deny the fact that they have been hugely successful and that, you know, Michael O'Leary and others have created this wonderful airline in many ways. Yeah, but I, I think that's what's quite, you know, <laughs> frustrating for us about this is that we have, you know, always reflected that in, in our coverage and other, uh, and other outlets have too. We give Ryanair credit for what it has done, but it has been in, uh, involved in numerous industrial actions over the past year and there was the issue with the flight cancellations and there there has been issues and we have covered those, I believe, fairly <laughs> and accurately. You know, is there some grievance here or...? or? Well, who knows? I mean, Ryanair um, don't really talk to me. Michael O'Leary doesn't <laughs> talk, talk to me, he hasn't spoken to me in uh, seven years. Uh, coincidentally, it was August 2011 when a complaint was made to the then editor of the Irish Times, Kevin O'Sullivan, about a story I wrote on photo of a press conference that Michael O'Leary uh, held in Dublin, where he played a bit fast and loose with the facts uh, around uh, various issues. And on the day, I questioned him about it at the press conference and he dismissed uh, my questions effectively. Uh, I made a joke of how, you know, I'd had too many lunches with the DA, which manages Dublin and Cork Airport and managed Shannon Airport at the time. Um, I came back to the office. I decided to sort of look at some of the claims that O'Leary was making and, and see if they stacked up. It was a, a fact or fiction um, type type piece. Uh, he made criticisms of the DEA, of uh, the regulator at the time, of the government and of the CSO for its tourism figures. And well, clearly Michael O'Leary wasn't happy. He had one of his, he had his head of communications at the time write a letter of complaint and a couple of follow-up uh, letters as well. Um, and I, I was told that I was persona non grata. So, I mean, you know, to me, Michael O'Leary has already demonstrated long ago that he's a very thin skin in terms of uh, criticism. And this is objective criticism. Um, so, and that's the way he's operated. That's the way he's often operated uh, with the media. So this latest uh, move by Ryanair has been met with a sharp response by your peers in other publications and outlets and business correspondents in Ireland. And we've also had the NUJ's uh, Seamus Dooley tweeting that there was no justification for for the move. Can we expect any other reaction perhaps? Well, we'll have to wait and see. I'm not sure that um, they've woken up to the fact yet. You know, it's something that uh, I suspect there'll be a bit of momentum behind it. But you're right on social media, uh, certainly last night after it emerged that Reiner was was going to ban the media from its AGM. It, it definitely generated a lot of comment uh, between business uh, journalists, you know. But, I mean, frankly, that wouldn't bother Michael O'Leary um, because having taken this decision, I, I suspect he doesn't really care what we think. Um, why would he? Uh, he wouldn't have made this decision. One has to presume that he has the support of the board in doing this. In fact, he may say that it was a it was a measure um, taken by the board, not by him specifically. Um, you know, he may well say that. I don't know because he hasn't, uh, he hasn't, uh, they haven't clarified precisely why they're doing it. But uh, nonetheless, it is unprecedented. Um, if we're going, if other companies decide to follow the Ryanair route, uh, as it as it were, it'll be it'll be a rum day for um, coverage of business, for transparency in Irish business, and it it will be a bad day for the role of a free press in our democracy. And I know to some people. That might be over-egging it. They might say, well, look, who cares? Ryanair AGM, who gives a damn? But actually, it's quite important that a big company, a big PLC like Ryanair, a big player on the international stage uh, like Ryanair, uh, opens up its meetings to the press as as is the norm um, and has been the norm in Ireland and indeed in the UK for, for decades. Okay, well, I'm just wondering if in the age of social media, it's a bit naive to think that anything said out loud in a large room with a roving microphone can be ever be 
private anyway. But well, indeed, I mean, this is the other point. Uh, media are now going to, you can be certain that uh, media outlets are now going to be looking at ways of attending this meeting uh, without needing their press credentials, if you know what I mean, either buying shares in the company, which you're entitled to do and attend as a shareholder, or perhaps uh, getting uh, a proxy uh, from a, a, an existing shareholder of Ryanair. But you're right, it is naive to feel that in this day and age, Ryanair's meeting can actually take place behind closed doors without uh, ever being reported. Right, well, I expect it will be an eventful uh, meeting, whether or not the media are there. My thanks for now to Kieran Hancock. That's all for this edition of Inside Business with me, Laura Slattery. My thanks to Fiona Redden, Peter Hamilton and, of course, Kieran Hancock. This podcast was produced by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. You can get the latest business news straight to your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. But until next time, thanks for listening. 